welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Um, getting blazing, blazing hot here in Texas, Charlie. Uh, the unbearable uh, time of year coming in pretty soon. And I would like to sneak away and go somewhere, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I think I'm going to have to have to ride this one out and pray that the AC holds up. How are you doing? Pretty well. It's lovely here. I like going for early warning. Early warning? Wow, that's a Freudian slip. Early morning <laughs> walks. Yeah. Not early warning walks, hopefully. Well, you know, in Florida, I guess that would uh, that would harken back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and whatnot. That's right. That's right. So we don't want to don't want to think about that too much. Uh, speaking of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that brings up the subject of ideology, which is something I wrote a brief corner post on this morning, but I thought we would uh, talk about for a second. Um, there is a lot of discussion about the ideology and political beliefs of the guy who murdered all those people up in Buffalo. And the general sort of democratic case is, well, this is basically Tucker Carlson, which, of course, is nonsense. And the Republican response has largely been, oh, but he also, you know, says he's a socialist sometimes and doesn't like Fox News. And all that. And these things are um, silly and and useless. But um, a couple of a couple of thoughts there. One is that this is being used by Democrats basically to try to discredit anybody who thinks there's too much uh, immigration and anybody who thinks that high levels of immigration are likely to change the country socially and politically in uh, in ways they don't like. I know you've actually got some views on that that you think that um, demographic change is not as politically predictable as Democrats and Republicans both seem to think it is. And maybe we can talk about that in a second. But these are very distinct points of views. Um, you know, the guy in, in Buffalo is a neo-Nazi, anti-Semite kook, whereas there's perfectly legitimate and respectable and ordinary political reasons to have more restrictionist views of immigration. Bernie Sanders did until five minutes ago uh, for reasons not unlike things you would hear from Donald Trump or our friend Mark Krikorian. Uh, having to do with wage pressure on very low wage workers and that sort of thing. So that is, you know, not especially helpful to try to lump these things together. And of course, it's being done in a cynical and stupid and ham-fisted way that's really pretty predictable. But um, a second thing that enters my mind on this is that um, if you take the the awful version of this ideology, you know, this, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, Jews are behind it all uh, stuff, it's it's poisonous and, and awful and, and wrong ideology, and I think that these things have to be confronted and uh, refuted, and I think that's a useful and, and worthy thing to do. But that doesn't actually do anything to help us to identify and prevent um, the people who are likely to commit crimes like the one we saw in Buffalo. Uh, in much the same way, you know, you get a— um, uh, the parallel case, of course, is is Islamic terrorism, where there are you know, 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. Most of them don't subscribe to any sort of uh, jihadist ideology. Some of them have you know, really strong political views about things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and sometimes those are expressed in ways that um, would make uh, you know, us nice, well-mannered Americans uh, nervous. Um, there's a smaller, much smaller group that does 
hold to these you know, Salafist jihadi views. But even among those people, and there are millions of them, perhaps, you know, a hundred million, most of them do not commit acts of terrorism. Uh, so identifying, well, here are the people who hold to this particular ideology, and these are the ones we're going to watch for, um, for mass shootings or acts of terrorism and things like that really isn't very useful. Uh, I saw a poll I heard yesterday, and it might have been in the New York Times, that allegedly something like 30% of Americans subscribe to some version of uh, replacement theory. And um, so you're not going to really do yourself a lot of favors by surveilling 30% of the population for these very, very rare um, kind of black swan occurrences. On the other hand, a lot of the people who commit acts like this do have a lot of things in common. Um, they tend to have um, prior publicly stated um, desires to do things like this, as the guy in uh, in Buffalo did, where he said after graduation, his post-graduation plans were to carry out a murder-suicide. And um, he didn't carry out the suicide part, but he certainly carried out the murder part. And he showed up in school wearing a hazmat suit and various other things. He was already on the radar of the police. He was already on the radar of some mental health authorities. Um, this story plays out over and over and over in these kinds of incidents, although not in every single case, of course. And it also plays out often in acts of uh, Islamist terrorism and other sorts of organized to um, to um, decentralized um, schools of political violence. So identifying those sorts of patterns and those sorts of behavioral markers and things seems to me like a much more manageable problem than trying to go after it as an ideological sorting problem. And, of course, the ideological sorting problem also brings up that you get these incidents perpetrated by people who have radically different ideologies. You know, just a little while ago, there was a guy who, um, was it three or four days before the the shooting in, in Buffalo, who tried to shoot up a church congregation because he was a Chinese patriot, apparently, and they were Taiwanese, and he wanted to, uh, you know, conduct a mass murder of, of Taiwanese people. I think it was the same day. Was it the same day? I believe huh. so. Yeah, okay. I, um... I stand corrected, then I don't, don't remember exactly the timeline on that. Of course, you won't hear as much about that because it's not politically useful to Democrats and their, and their friends in the media. But it's also an example of the fact that um, you've got radically different ideologies associated with these crimes. And you also would see this sometimes in things like um, abortion clinic violence. You know, a lot of abortion clinic violence is pretty straight up abortion clinic violence. Uh, we hate abortion. We hate abortionists. And that's that. Some of them you dig into and you get all sorts of stuff that looks a lot more like schizophrenia than it does like political ideology. Uh, you know, oh, who was it? Salvi, the one who, who was some grand conspiracy theory involving uh, currency manipulation and the Vatican issuing its own money and the Pope and the FBI. And he was both a Catholic fanatic and sort of an anti-Catholic fanatic at the same time. He was just bananas. And something I think, yeah, I think it was you actually who said on the editor's podcast um, yesterday is that um, the way these situations really start out as a practical matter is you have someone who is inclined to kill a bunch of people and he finds an ideology um, eventually that resonates with him and sort of service to that. I hesitate to say mental illness because I'm not sure all these people are exactly mentally ill. Some of them are just just evil. But the sort of person who is going to carry out an act like that, whether it's political terrorism 
whether it's a school shooting or a mall shooting or something like what happened in Buffalo, which is both of those things, I think, at the same time, both political terrorism and something like a Columbine shooting. Um, that person is that person before he discovers his animating conspiracy theory or ideology or philosophy or religious fanaticism, whatever it is that leads him to that point. I've been talking for a long time. What do you think, Charlie? Well, I, of course, agree with the last thing you said, because I said it, and I do agree with myself. That is one thing I'm committed to. I don't always agree with myself. Occasionally, (laughs) I I find that I don't, and I'll look at... I wrote that. Jeez, what was I thinking? Well, maybe over time, I changed my mind. But I certainly agree with what I said uh, yesterday. (laughs) Good to know. So you're not having a Joan Walsh moment where you don't remember what you said (laughs) yesterday. I I think there, there are two things I would add. The first is that the numbers aren't on our side in trying to weed these out either. There was a David Leonard, Leonard piece today in the New York Times in which he says that the vast majority of terrorism in the United States is right-wing. I don't know enough about this to comment on that. I'd have to have a look into it. But he suggested as evidence for this that there are 30 white supremacist murders a year in the United States. Now, that's 30 too many. But this is a country of 330 million people a country in which there are 25,000 murders a year. The idea that we would in any useful way be able to find the 30 people who do this, I think is is silly. I mean, 30 is about the number of people every year in the United States who are killed in grain silo accidents. Again, 30 too many. Pretty common where I come from, actually. Get a lot of those. Well, a lot might be doing too much work. Uh, Certainly more than you'd get in New York City. But again, 30, pretty hard to predict. And the follow-on question from that is, how do you intend to do it? Even if it were 300 or 3,000, how do you intend to do it? Well, this is tough because being a white supremacist is not illegal. Right. No, I don't like those people any more than you do. I find what those people say and think and would, if they had power, do. Just for the record, there are certain people who are not well disposed toward you or me who will uh, take I don't like them any more than you do as uh, ambiguous. <laughs> well, I loathe these people and what they believe. <laughs> yes. But I also will defend their constitutional rights to the hilt, as the ACLU did famously in Skokie. And as you say, this is where it is important to distinguish between people who have said things such as, I intend to shoot up a school, or I would like to commit a murder suicide, or I want to garner a higher body count than the shooters at Columbine and people who say, I think black people are inferior or the white race is being replaced by Jews or Hitler was right. Hitler was right is an absolutely grotesque sentiment. It's also protected explicitly by the First Amendment and the jurisprudence that it has yielded. So you're saying we can't lock up Louis Farrakhan? Yeah. And I'm saying that we can't lock up, you know, Billy Bob, who sits at the bar and talks too much about Mexicans and suggests that only white people can be full citizens. Billy Bob's allowed to do that. And some of the conversations that we have 
they range into territory that makes me uncomfortable. They range into the suggestion that we should perhaps arrest or harass people for holding terrible views, that we should condition certain rights, the Second Amendment being one of them, on the views that people hold, uh, that we should surveil people permanently, it seems, because that's what you'd have to do for holding terrible views. And that is illegal. It's also impractical, not because everyone in the country is secretly a white supremacist, but because, as you say, the vast majority of these people, even the people who go out to Idaho and join some camp who institutionalize their hatred, mostly sit around the campfire being dumb. (laughs) Not always. Some of those people are dangerous. Some of them are also criminals, and they're dangerous not because they're white supremacists, but because they're criminals. But most of them, they say and think ugly things, but they don't hurt anyone. And trying to shift the perception from this person has terrible opinions to this person is a physical threat is difficult, as it should be within American law. Yeah. A couple of additional statistical thoughts here. It really matters how you can count these incidents. So, you know, the Congressional Research Service um, follows mass shootings, but its definition of a mass shooting is any shooting at which four or more people are shot in a single location. And that ends up capturing a lot of, unfortunately, what we think of as just more or less ordinary crime, you know, of gang turf disputes in uh, cities and that sort of thing. So if you look at the, the Congressional uh, Research Services numbers, um, it doesn't look like a white supremacist problem at all because African-Americans are, are substantially overrepresented in those numbers, about 20% of the shooters versus 12%, 12.5% of the population whereas whites are slightly underrepresented at about 56% of the shooters and, what, 70-odd percent of the population, something like that. If you start looking at cases where someone was live-streaming it on the Internet and there was a manifesto and that sort of thing, then, yeah, you get a lot of these uh, uh, people who look more like the shooter in uh, Buffalo. But, of course, they are a very, very small number of homicides, as you point out. Um, not even really a, a rounding error on the annual murder death toll in the United States. And what is in some ways particularly irritating about the way that conversation um, unfolds is that for those other murders that constitute the vast majority of homicides in the United States, we actually probably have some pretty good policy ideas for addressing some of those. Uh, you know, in, in most cities, uh, the New York Times did a, a study I've cited many, many times on New York City. of the homicides are carried out by people with prior criminal records. Um, A large share of violent felonies are carried out by people with prior criminal records, including, in many cases, prior weapons offenses. And I know you and I have gone on and on and on and on about this, but we must continue to go on and on and on about this till this changes. Um, Basic gun laws don't get enforced. We don't prosecute straw buyers almost ever unless it's an organized crime case of some sort. Um, We don't actually often arrest people on weapons charges. We let people walk when they should be charged with a weapons charge a lot. Um, That gets gets to be complicated because there are some critics of our... uh, criminal justice system who are afraid that weapons charges are going to end up being sort of the new war on drugs 
And I understand that uh, fear, but I think there's probably a much better case for arresting people illegally in possession of firearms than there is for arresting people illegally in possession of marijuana. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But for the 99.5% of murders that actually are common crime in the United States that are not crackpot with a manifesto um, who's been on 4chan too much, um, we've actually got some reasonable policy um, approaches to that stuff. And what would be useful, although we seem really hesitant to do it, is to take a really um, strong, robust, data-driven approach and look at what combinations of factors that we know from the public record in terms of arrest histories and things like that are likely to be associated in the future with uh, future homicides or other violent felonies. Um, this is not to say that we can arrest people on pre-crime or that sort of thing, which obviously we can't do that. But that is a way to produce a much smaller and manageable, more manageable population in which you can probably try some kinds of social interventions, whether it's, you know, counseling, violence de-escalation, that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, more robust uh, parole and probation. A lot of these folks are on parole or probation, and the oversight often isn't very good um, in those cases. So there are things we could do for the vast majority of shootings in the United States. Um, but what we want to do is talk about Tucker Carlson, because the truth is the sort of people who really intellectually and culturally dominate the Democratic Party are reasonably well-off college-educated white progressives on Twitter. And they don't give a damn what happens in neighborhoods they never go to, to people they're never going to meet. They do care a whole lot about Tucker Carlson because they live in this um, immersive media environment that consists of friends and enemies, good guys and bad guys, cowboys and Indians. And Tucker Carlson is the most popular guy and uh, on the most popular cable news network. And he's got um, often dumb and dumbly expressed ideas. I have to say, I don't think Tucker's dumb. I think he's a very smart guy. And in my personal interactions with him, I've always kind of liked him. His career path has been to me in many ways inexplicable, and I don't understand why he does what he does. But, you know, it's not a matter of engaging these even as serious um, political debates. He's just a hate totem. You know, he's just a face and a name that gets used in a symbolic way in our, you know, symbolic and ritualistic politics. I think that the Tucker Carlson focus is indeed the product of the cultural obsessions you describe, but it's also a transparent attempt to get from A to B when one can't get from A to B. Yes. Well, clearly, part of the invocation of Tucker Carlson and Elise Stefanik and others is part of a broader attempt to blame what happened on the Republican Party or conservatives or anyone who isn't a progressive. But it's also an attempt to create a conspiracy where none exists. And I think this is important because it reflects and uh, emphasizes the earlier point, which is that it's really difficult to know what to do here. If we had a genuinely organized white supremacist movement in this country, it would be easier to deal with it. And I would be more open within constitutional bounds to government 
initiatives to deal with it. If we had, as we did during the late 19th century and early 20th century, a Ku Klux Klan that met in physical rooms and had headquarters and a mailing address and filed taxes and had a uniform, then we would be in much better uh, shape insofar as we would be able to fight it. I mean, we would be in much worse shape if we had a Ku Klux Klan. We would be going backwards. But So when people say... Point of context to add there, Um, because it's interesting to me anyway, that we do have an extraordinarily uh, large and well-organized white supremacist movement in the country in the form of the Aryan Brotherhood and sort of uh, associated white power prison gangs. The interesting thing about them is they don't have any interest in doing anything that's sort of white power related outside of prison. Their main interests are traditional criminal interests like, uh, you know, drug dealing and uh, the other sorts of things they do. Go ahead, please. Right. We've already got them. (laughs) That's the second problem. What do you do once you put them behind bars? But I mention this because from time to time, someone will ask, why is it that after 9-11, we... Uh, expended all these resources trying to fight Al-Qaeda and what we call radical Islamic terrorism. We won't do the same thing with white terrorism. Uh, And I think the answer is simple. It's because Al-Qaeda was an institution. It was was an organization. It had a a hierarchy. It had stated aims. It had uh, people who had expressed fealty to those aims. It had a funding network. It was located in and protected by governments. And irrespective of what one thinks about the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan, even if one would have preferred a law enforcement approach, as I know some people would have, we would still have had something to go after in the same ways we did with, say, the mafia. The same yeah. would be true, as I said, if we had... Uh, the clan, but we don't. I mean, this guy got his ideas from Four Chan. We we actually have a pretty strong record for going after crackpot organizations. Um, if anything, sometimes our record for going off crack, going after crackpot organizations is too strong. Um, for it's the case of the Branch Davidians, yeah, I mean, someone like that who were you know potentially dangerous. They had a lot of guns. I mean. Um, but they had this, you know, crazy, crazy theology and uh, uh, might have been involved in other sorts of, you know, criminal activity. But what we did in that particular circumstance, I think, was, you know, overreaction. So, you know, and we've also seen this is probably more the case in the 90s when um, sort of militia movement was kind of more socially and politically prominent, where a much greater effort was made to go after these organizations and institutions, as you put it. But yeah, people, jackasses on 4chan aren't exactly um, anything like that. But the fact that he got most of his ideas from jackasses on 4chan is the point. If you asked Al-Qaeda members, executives, senior vice presidents, where they got their ideas, they could point to the mosque, uh, they could point to the training camp. If you asked Ku Klux Klan members where they got their ideas, where they trained, where they planned their uh, ghastly intimidation, they would say, well, we all met by that tree and talked about it. That's not true of this guy. Now, you could take this too far. The internet is a communications network, but he wasn't part of a cell. Yeah. And this is a guy sitting at home 
you know, reading ugly materials, which are also First Amendment protected, and even if they weren't extremely difficult to take away from the internet. And I think that makes this really difficult. And so why have certain, not all, progressives started to talk as if they can lay their finger on the conspiracy? Well, the answer is because they need there to be one in order to justify their rhetoric, which is Merrick Garland needs to wake up and go after these people. Uh, these people have to be Tucker Carlson in this circumstance. Otherwise, the whole theory falls apart because he's a guy sitting at home. Yeah. You know, I've written sort of cynically about this in the past, and I know it sounds very um, utilitarian, but um, I tend to think that one thing their parents could do uh, that might help is to join a church and take them to church when they're young. And I wrote this piece a, a while back on these you know, incels, as they call themselves, and my advice to them was join a church. And it's not because I think they'll be transformed by the theology or the um, preaching, although one hopes that would be the case, but because churches are full of girls who want to get married. And it's a really, really good place for uh, young people to to meet one another. And often the, you know, sort of sexual frustration, sexual anxiety, the kind of, you know, social loneliness um, of these shooters and killers and people who get involved in this kind of, you know, crackpot stuff is just so obvious and right there on the surface i mean not in every single case but you know just so so often that um i mean it's it sounds glib and like a jackass thing to say but if this guy had a girlfriend probably wouldn't have happened right no i, mean, I think there's been, a lot to that probably been a very different you know kind of outcome well and i believe so, and i'm sure this is now totally verboten but i believe that women civilize men so and yeah. it's not just the the whatever frustrations he had. I I think you were a barbarian before you got married. <laughs> well, I wasn't a barbarian, but I was more of a barbarian. Yes, I'm not going to go into that in my particular personal case. But I, think. <laughs> well, I think it's true. I think I think by and yeah. large, women civilize men, and yeah, um, the combination. But Charlie, who can civilize Pennsylvania? <laughs> Awkward segue. <laughs> I lived in Pennsylvania for many years. Nobody can civilize. I was going to say, we're going to get emails from your implication there. I like Pennsylvania. Great state. Uh, I think Philadelphia is an enormously underrated city. Enjoyed living there in the suburbs of Philadelphia anyway. So I do not feel the way about Pennsylvania that I do to its its western neighbor. Well, as you know, I like all the states except New Jersey. (laughs) <laughs> so what do I think about Pennsylvania? I think that this is a great example of political parties shooting themselves in the foot yeah. by choosing candidates that are likely to lose in a year where they should win. And in particular... Also, when, you're, when your enemies are pointing your gun at your foot, trying to help you shoot, you shoot your foot, maybe you shouldn't cooperate with. Yeah, so this is my main takeaway. I, I take limited interest in who wins governor's races in states I don't live in. I have some interest in the Senate because the Senate exercises federal power. Federal power is supreme and far more expansive than it should be and therefore could plausibly affect me. But yeah, I am not spending a great deal of time this year worrying about what's going to happen in, say, the Washington state governor's race, if there even is one. 
But I do think that the trend that we saw in Pennsylvania deserves comment. The Democratic Party helped the least electable and most crazy Republican in the gubernatorial race, Doug Mastriano, become the nominee. It didn't make him the nominee. That was on Republicans. Republicans did that. Republican primary voters chose him. They could have not chosen him. They weren't forced to. No guns were held to their heads. They chose him, and they should be ashamed of themselves for doing so. But the Democrats helped willingly. The Democrats in Pennsylvania sent mailers out, fluffing up Mastriano, and ran almost a million dollars of TV ads, promoting him in ways that they believed would make him more appealing to the Republican base. And the reason that they did that is that they thought he would be an easier candidate to beat in November. Now, in and of itself, I have no particular problem with that. Politics ain't beanbag, as Americans say. But you cannot do that and cast the guy as a threat to the republic. No. The moment I'm still, I'm still stuck on the word fluffing, but uh, go ahead. The moment you do that, you lose any moral authority. You lose any right to say this guy is a threat. You must vote against him for the sake of the state or the country. And why is he? purportedly uh, an existential threat to American democracy. It's the election truther, I assume. Right? Ah, he's an election truther. And... Yeah. So like Stacey Abrams. Right. And Hillary Clinton. Right. But look, I, I think this is a, an important point. By all means, screw around. By all means, play games in politics. By all means, try to undermine your opponent and force them into unpopular positions and force your opponent's party to pick bad candidates. But if you materially help and put in a potential position of power someone you think is unfit for office, then I don't ever want to hear you complaining about the consequences. You cannot have it both ways. And the Democrats have done this in Pennsylvania. And this morning, Shapiro, his name is, the Democratic candidate for governor, is already saying he's a threat. He's too extreme. He's not what Pennsylvania needs. We're going to be subjected now to lectures about our democracy for the next six months. And this guy is going to be suspect number one in the supposed plot to overthrow the U.S. government. Well, if the Democrats really believed that, if they went to bed worrying about it, then they wouldn't have helped him in any way because it is going to be a good Republican year. And it might be a good enough Republican year to sweep the guy in anyway. And I don't believe he's going to bring down Pennsylvania or overthrow democracy or any of that because I believe in our system. It works. I think it can contain election truthers. But I do think that if you believe that we are at the crossroads, then you have a responsibility to avoid helping people who threaten the future of the country get into a position in which a freak election uh, could elevate them to a position of power. And I'm just sick of it. I mean, Do you know why I think Mastriano might win? Why? Because I think the reach and influence of our friend uh, Ben 
puts Democrat named Shapiro at a definite disadvantage. I think having the last name Shapiro might turn on you and cut into his turnout to two and a half points. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't, Kevin, they, didn't, they didn't have a Limbaugh to nominate, I suppose. So. We've done this before. We did this in 2016. Yeah. National Review said, don't nominate that guy. I know, I know a lot of people out there think that we said don't vote for him in the general. We didn't. That was an individual question for our writers. I know a lot of people think we said undermine him at all costs. Didn't do that either. We did say don't vote for him in the primary. We didn't say whatever. Who cares? I mean, I said don't vote for him in the general. No, that's we fine. I, that's fine. We didn't collectively. I, I, I didn't say, say anything because I... I couldn't vote i wasn't a citizen but we did this jonathan chait said the republicans should nominate trump matt iglesias said the republicans should nominate trump hillary clinton wanted him as her opponent bill clinton encouraged him to run and then they got him and you would think (laughs) you would think six years later that they would have learned this that if they really think that someone is a threat, then they should be trying to pick an opponent who will not be a threat. And I can only conclude they don't believe a word of it. Yeah. Because I tell you what, Kevin, when when it looked like Bernie Sanders was winning the Democratic nomination in 2019, I wasn't in favor of that because I thought he'd be an easier opponent. If you go back to the editor's podcast, I think all of us were saying, oh my goodness. It looks as if it could be Bernie. Once you get into the position in a divided country like ours where you have two candidates, anything can happen. So don't hope for the guy you think is a lunatic or a threat to the republic just because you hope he's easier to beat. You might get what you want. Yeah. In the 80s, Eddie Murphy used to do a skit about um, a little bit about... um you know, a couple of drunk white rednecks going to the polls and voting for Jesse Jackson as a lark and then waking up in the morning, he won. Getting <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really uh, upset about that. I think a lot of people were feeling the same way about Donald Trump. No, Donald Trump, first of all. What do you mean I won? I got to, oh, dear Lord. But, um, yeah. So were there any other particularly notable uh, elections? I haven't really been following the, uh, the primary stuff. Well, Madison Cawthorn lost his primary. I did read about that. Which is great. That shows some ability to correct course within the GOP. Yeah. That that guy is um I don't want to be uh cruel, but um it seems like he's he's on a downward trajectory that's gonna end in some movie of the week tabloid kind of way. Yeah, he's troubled. Yeah, he's uh he's a crackpot. And then on the other side, I think the Democrats may have nominated a lunatic in Oregon for the House. Oh, yeah? Which makes it more likely that seat will go to the Republicans. And then the Senate primary in Pennsylvania is still being counted. Right, but they're going to, the Democrats are going to run that guy that looks like me, right? Oh, he won. He won going away. But the Republican candidates. Oh, I see. Uh, still fighting it out. It's funny how we, we 
lapse into sports metaphors. I do it myself as if this is an ongoing fight. You know, on election night, everyone talks about it like this. Oh, but but Trump is surging in Gouladoni County. Well, these, these, these ballots were <laughs> they were cast ages ago. Yeah, if he can just come back in Allegheny. So, do you are you going to do some rank punditry, as Jonah likes to call it, and uh, and make the call in Pennsylvania? Well, you know, I think we might be headed for the nightmare scenario where Doctor Oz is ahead, but there are enough late arriving ballots to put the uh, more establishment, but by no means typical Republican establishment candidate McCormick over the top, and mm. we might have another stop the steal claim on our hands that makes Pennsylvania even less viable. Uh, no good. I think Dr. Oz will probably just about take it. You think? Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. This power of celebrity and Trump support. I, I have to say, I don't know what will happen in the general, but was it you, Kevin, who wrote about his ad about breathing uh, the spark of life into every American? Probably. It sounds like something I've written about. So I watched the same ad and I thought, oh no, sounds ghastly. I'm quite happy here in my house, thanks. But I thought his ad would be popular. I said right from the beginning, I, I don't think that he is seen in quite the way I see him. Yeah, you know, something I've been trying to get down on paper, it's one of those essays that I've tried to write five times and they've all kind of been failures is the power of real celebrity versus the power of sort of political celebrity. You know, the sort of celebrity that someone like Donald Trump had before he ran for president versus sort of Tucker Carlson level of celebrity and you know, kind of Fox news. I'm on a cable show, uh, sort of celebrity. It, David French, I guess, was it. He wrote a, a little piece called Fox news famous once. And I thought that was very good. But celebrity in our culture is such a weird, independent um, cultural phenomenon that it's it's sort of a bigger and more powerful current than political ideology and political affiliation. Um, there were Democrats got to have a good laugh at Republicans when Trump was nominated in uh, in 16 and then won. But it's going to happen to them, too, one of these days, um, you know, as soon as someone like Oprah Winfrey or some, you know, comparable left-leaning celebrity decides he or she wants to be president of the United States, that, you know, real power of celebrity is going to come in and just overwhelm the entire political apparatus and the whole uh, kind of cultural machinery of partisanship and political affiliation. You know, if Beyonce decided she wanted the uh, Democratic nomination, um, she'd have a pretty good chance of getting it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I also think that I don't understand particularly well on either an intellectual or intuitive level how the average political candidate is regarded. Mm. I moved to America in 2011. I never understood why people fawned over Obama. I could see that he is appealing. I could see he has a nice voice. Uh, he's a handsome, tall man. I can see the constituent parts. But he always seemed so annoying to me. And obviously, I couldn't grasp why people like Trump still can't. There are a lot of candidates people seem to like that I just don't get. They leave me cold. And I've learned this as the time has gone by. So I've learned to 
think about them from my own perspective and then to try to step out of my body and imagine how other people see them. And I stepped out of my body for a moment with Dr. Oz and thought, eh, I think you might do all right. And just for the record, I think the same thing of Herschel Walker in Georgia. Everyone's so worried about him. I, I'm not. I think he's yeah. going to win. He's Herschel Walker. Have you, have you ever read about him? <laughs> have you ever read yeah. about his college football career? And have you ever seen him talk? I mean, he's interesting, charismatic. Yeah, he's going to do fine. I think. There's, there's many things to criticize him for, of course. And I'm sure he'll say some silly things as he has. But I, I think we can sometimes get so focused in. You know, a good example of this, albeit it's not related to celebrity, is the focus on Rick Scott's platform, whatever you want to call it, that that Democrats keep trying to make a thing. Yes. Well, yes, I mean, we have many structural disadvantages going into 2022, but have you seen what Rick Scott said on the 37th? No. <laughs> yes, no one will ever see that. Some half-ass white paper from some, you know, former governor and current senator who is um, not an A-list player. But you could try to pass like that in Congress, and the yeah. number of Americans who would know what it said would still be 10%. Yeah, and it would be laughed at, of course, too. Yeah, you know, just to, the, the Trump thing you were mentioning, you don't understand the attraction Donald Trump. Part of it's just, you know, sort of ordinary celebrity. But part of it, I think, is, is fantasy fulfillment. Um, you know, if you look, there's a sort of genre of movies and television shows and stuff that do really, really well that have to do with sudden radical transformation in someone's life, like suddenly becoming wealthy or discovering that you're a princess or, uh, you know, something like that. A lot of, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, sort of romance uh, cinema and books work the same way where you suddenly meet this person who changes your life. Trump had a lot of um, character qualities that I think a lot of people wish they had. His sort of mischievousness, um, his sort of, you know, I have so much money, I don't have to care what you think about anything sort of attitude. I think a lot of people wish they could do that and be that way. And I think that's one of the reasons for the very, very intense personal connection that people feel with Donald Trump is this uh, fantasy fulfillment element that he uh, brings to the table. He's also funny. Mm, yeah. He's genuinely funny. Not always, and it's not worth it. But he is funny. <laughs> I've watched him at rallies, and he says something genuinely amusing. It, it's also sometimes amusing when people are completely out of sorts with their surroundings. That wasn't funny for most of his presidency. It was my biggest criticism of him. How could he not adapt? But also, that's what screwball comedies do. <laughs> you put yeah. someone in this strange situation... And occasionally he could be self-deprecating. I mean, his best ever line was when he said, could you imagine what I'd be like if I drank? It was funny and it showed a self-awareness, albeit briefly. And I think you just cannot overestimate how, how compelling that can be in a political era that feels very, very serious. I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel serious thanks to the people who are uh, running the show. Uh, but it, it feels serious in that they all want to be taken seriously, even if they don't deserve to be. Yeah. And, you know, there was something about Trump that was irreverent and a little shrug of the shoulders, almost a wink. 
um, if you know if, if another candidate who is less crazy can harness that somehow, then they'll they'll do well. Yeah. Uh, sui generis, I think so. In this particular case, thank God. Anything else we want to talk about? Hmm. 